Forgiveness is in short supply these days. Forgiveness is in short supplies these days. It's one of those things, forgiveness, that's uniquely Christian. Forgiveness was not valued in the ancient world. The Romans didn't make much of forgiveness. The Greeks didn't make much of forgiveness. Jesus was the one who made forgiveness a big deal. And as our culture becomes increasingly post-Christian, the practice of forgiveness, reconciliation to one another, has faded. Indeed, there are some who even argue today that forgiveness is not needed at all. It is harmful to the oppressed, some will say, or some will say that it's simply weak. So on one end of the spectrum, you have people who argue that asking or commanding that those people who have been wronged um, should have to forgive their oppressors is itself oppressive. It's a tool, forgiveness, that is used to excuse the one who does wrong and to perpetuate injustice. So you have that argument people make. It's very common. You'll find that a lot with uh, the Me Too and BLM and things of that nature. Now, on the other end, some are saying that forgiveness is simply weak or cowardly. This is more of a return to the ancient view. A real man doesn't forgive those who harm him. He takes vengeance, right? He returns fire for fire. This is the manly thing to do. Now, what does the church say to this, this new situation we find ourselves in? Well, we're continuing our series on the church community, but specifically the practices that separate us from the world. And we are distinguished from the society around us as we've seen by sharing the table with one another. That is, by breaking bread in gladness and sincerity of heart like the early church did. We do that by sharing our wealth and possessions with one another. That is, we take care of one another when need arises, that there would be no one needy among us. And as we saw last week, we distinguish ourselves from society by sharing the spiritual gifts that God has given us, using whatever it is for the common good of the entire church body. Now, forgiveness is another such practice that is intended to distinguish us from the wider world. And it gives us an opportunity to be a contrast community that we're called to be. That is, in a culture of vengeance and in a culture of cancellation, that we, the church, would be a people of forgiveness and reconciliation, that we would be a light to the world around us. Now, our outline this morning is rather straightforward and simple. I want to point out three things that we find in this passage. First is the definition of forgiveness. Second is the resources that we have for forgiveness. And then third, we want to take a practical turn and look at the practices of forgiveness. So let's go ahead and just turn to the text. Peter's question to Jesus receives an astonishing answer. Now, at the time, the rabbinic view, this was sort of the standard view of the time, was that one had to forgive someone only three times. So the saying was, if a man commits a transgression, the first, second, and third times he is forgiven, the fourth time he is not forgiven. So Peter has obviously learned something from Jesus, specifically 
the priority that Jesus places upon forgiveness. Remember, we said it wasn't really that much valued even in Israel at the time. It was Jesus who took forgiveness and gave it this new exalted place. So Peter's learned that, and he decides, well, maybe the limit is higher than four. He says up to seven times, verse 21. And maybe Peter thought he was being um, you know, particularly big-hearted, uh, seven times being the extreme limit of forgiveness. And even so, Jesus astonishes Peter and us with his answer. Verse 22, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. I'll control it from here, guys. That's a, We'll just do this guy. There we go. Up to 70 times 7. Because I only have like two slides and I can, I'll change them for you guys. So um, the point is that our forgiveness is supposed to have no limits, in other words. It's to go beyond the sort of normal moral calculus where, you know, just up to a certain point, that's it. Now, there's some disagreement about the number here. Um, it could read... 70 times 7, so 490, as my translation has it, 490, as you see on the screen, or it could read 77 times, so just the number 77, as other translations have it. Either way, the number that Jesus gives to Peter is staggering, and it's an allusion to another part of the Scriptures. In Genesis, at the very beginning, there's another sort of multiplying of sevens, but this time inverted. Lamech boasts, this is Genesis chapter 4, verses 23 through 24. He says, I have killed a man for wounding me, a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Now, Lamech was a descendant of Cain. And Cain was the first murderer. His brother did him no wrong, Abel. Yet rather than confessing his hatred and seeking reconciliation, Cain took Abel's life and he struck him down in the field. And then Cain went on to found a city on the innocent blood of his brother. Now Lamech takes his forefather's legacy and he expands upon it. If Cain is avenged, sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Lamech makes vengeance the ruling principle of human civilization. And of course, Lamech's edict still rules. It remains this way even to today. Human affairs are kept relatively peaceful through threats of vengeance. If you strike me and I promise to strike you with sevenfold vengeance we're going to think twice about crossing each other. Right? It's the principle of mutually assured destruction. It sort of keeps the peace. However, once wrong is done and that line is crossed, there's nothing that can stop it. The cycle of violence and then counter-violence will continue until there's no one left. Families are torn apart by it, friends are separated for good, and communities are fractured into warring camps. It just keeps escalating. The conflict does when vengeance is the ruling principle. 
So Lamech is still alive and well, but Jesus' allusion to and reversal of Lamech's threat tells us about a new sort of civilization that he's starting. Jesus' city, his kingdom, his brotherhood is not characterized by sevenfold vengeance, but by sevenfold forgiveness. It's characterized not by settling scores to get even, returning fire with fire. Rather, things are evened out by canceling debts, by releasing obligations. Vengeance is not the ruling principle in the kingdom of God. Forgiveness is. So the church is to be a city set on a hill. It's supposed to demonstrate this way of forgiveness to the world. Now, if we're to do that, it's going to help to understand at least a little bit better what forgiveness actually is. So what does our passage tell us about forgiveness? Well, the first is that forgiveness is the opposite of vengeance. Now, Lamech is not in the habit of forgiving those who harm him. He's in the habit of killing those who harm him and then promising sevenfold vengeance to anyone who dares retaliate. Now, forgiveness is the determination to put aside vengeance. Forgiveness does not settle scores. Forgiveness doesn't try to get even. Forgiveness doesn't return fire for fire. It means checking out of that cycle altogether. As the scripture says, Romans 12, 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Forgiveness checks out of that system. And Jesus wants Peter to be the opposite of Lamech, forgiving 70 times 7 instead of taking sevenfold vengeance. Now, second, forgiveness means bearing the wrong. Now, Lamech pays back the wrong. It's the eye for eye, tooth for tooth strategy. Lamech recoups his own debt. He reclaims it from the one who harmed him by any means necessary. And forgiveness doesn't do this, as we'll see. Forgiveness does not pay back. Forgiveness does not demand repayment. Instead, it clears debt. Forgiveness frees people from the accounting that their sins demand. Peter is supposed to do the opposite of Lamech. He's to turn the other cheek. He's to go the extra mile. He's to give his shirt and also his cloak. He's to bear the price of forgiveness and not inflict the price of vengeance. And then third is that forgiveness seeks reconciliation. Lamech destroys brotherhood, and his vow to vengeance makes sure that it will never be reestablished. Communities that are founded on vengeance can never do anything new. They keep doing the same thing over and over, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, in identical repetition. As someone once said, eye for an eye will only make the whole world blind. Forgiveness breaks this cyclical pattern. Jesus wants Peter and the other apostles to end Lamech's perpetual war and to open the door for reconciliation and renewal. So forgiveness is the opposite of vengeance. It means bearing the wrong, and it seeks reconciliation. 
Now, I also want to be clear on what forgiveness is not, because this is equally as important. First, forgiveness is not excusing or whitewashing sin. We sometimes tend to think that forgiveness means pretending or convincing ourselves that the wrong done to us was not wrong in the first place. You know, they're just being boys, or it was a moment of weakness, or it just wasn't that bad after all. Forgiveness, rather, is clear and sober about the reality of sin. Forgiveness starts by taking the full measure of the cost because the price cannot be paid unless it is first reckoned. So forgiveness is not excusing sin. It's not whitewashing sin. Second, forgiveness is also not suspending judgment. You know, it's possible to say, I forgive you this time, but next time I'm not going to be so nice. That's probation, and it's the opposite of what Jesus counsels Peter to do. Not keeping a tally, but taking that upper limit of seven and destroying it. So probation is saying up to four times, up to seven times. Jesus does away with that. Third, forgiveness is also not weaponizing mercy. That is, we can sometimes forgive someone, but what we're really doing is claiming the moral high ground over them. It says, because I've forgiven you, I expect you to grovel before me. That's not forgiveness. That's a form of morally superior revenge. You're still making them pay you back by the shame of their deed or deeds. Fourth, rather, forgiveness is not also abandoning justice. It's very true that forgiveness can be used as a tool to let the wrongdoer off the hook. It can be used not to make a situation right, but as a get-out-of-jail-free card. And rather than eliminating sin, it can become a tool that creates the conditions for unchecked continuation of sin. Forgiveness does not mean that all consequences of wrongdoing are cleared in all circumstances. And then lastly, forgiveness is also not immediate trust. Forgiveness is aimed at restoration, but usually that's a process rather than an immediate result. And in some cases, in theft or domestic abuse or adultery or other things along those lines, it has to be a process. To restore the offender immediately would be deeply irresponsible. So we see what forgiveness is. It's withholding vengeance. It's bearing the cost. It's seeking reconciliation. And we see what it's not. And now what we can do is turn to Jesus' parable to see sort of what he's getting at and look at the resources for forgiveness. And he uses the parable as an explanation for his command to forgiveness. So Jesus says, after he blows Peter and all of our minds, he says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And one of those slaves, Jesus says, owed the king 10,000 talents. Now, this is truly an absurd amount of money. A talent in the Roman Empire was the highest denomination of currency. And 10,000 
was in the Greek language was the highest number that they had a word for, myrias, where our word myriad comes from. So by today's accounting, 10,000 talents would be somewhere around 300 to 400 million dollars that this slave owed the king. Now, Jesus gives us no indication of how the slave could have accrued this much debt or why the king would lend it to him in the first place. He simply notes that when the slave could not pay, verse 24, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment be made. So faced with his terrible, the terrible consequences of his actions, Jesus says the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, verse 26, have patience with me and I will repay everything. So it's the slave, it seems, is sincere, but he's sincerely mistaken. It would take, if he were just to earn a normal working wage, 10,000 lifetimes to repay the king what he owed him. His bargain is absurd in the extreme, and the king would be foolish to take it. Yet, remarkably, he does. Jesus continues that when the slave fell down and begged him, he says the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave his debt. It's an act of forgiveness that's almost unimaginable. And it's, that number is like something of 80% of the gross domestic product, more than 80% of the nations in the world. So to forgive him would certainly mean to almost bankrupt his kingdom. So it seems like, at least for the slave, a happy ending. But the parable continues. The forgiven slave then goes and seeks out and finds a fellow slave who owns, owes him money. A hundred denarii is the number. Now, it's still a good chunk of change, around $10,000 today, yet it's negligible compared to what he owed the king, less than a percentage. And so why does he seek him out? To clear him of his debt? No, he does it to demand it back. He seized him, Jesus says, by the neck and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe, verse 27. And as he once fell before the king, so now his fellow slave falls before him and he makes the same plea, have patience with me and I will repay you, verse 29. But unlike his king, this slave is an evil man. Verse 30, he was unwilling and he went and he threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. Now, when the other slaves find out what had happened, the parable says they were deeply grieved, and they went and told on him. And when the king found out, he summoned this slave to him, and he repealed his former mercy. I forgave you, he says. Should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave, verse 33? And moved with anger, the king, he didn't sell him, as he previously planned to do, but he handed him over to the torturers, verse 34. This slave who was determined to get his just desserts from others got what he deserved himself. He was thrown to the torturers, and his once cleared debt is reinvoked, this time till every last penny 
is repaid. And then Jesus ends his parable with these sort of haunting words. My father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So the point of the parable, maybe unlike some other parables, is unmistakably clear. And there is a positive and a negative side to the point of the parable. Now, on the positive side, the point is that God's lavish forgiveness of us, 10,000 talents, enables us or should enable us to forgive others. Now, we are obviously supposed to see ourselves in the slave. And his astronomical debt as reflecting our sin. His hopeless position is a commentary on ours. We have racked up a bill in our sin and transgression of which there is just no paying back. And when the time of accounting comes, just like that slave, we have no leverage. We have nothing to offer. All that we own is not even a percentage of what we owe. And the only thing that we can do in that moment is appeal to the mercy of God. And astonishingly, God is ready to accept our appeal. Psalm 85, God, you are good, or Lord, you are good and ready to forgive. He has compassion, as the parable says, and it leads him to forgiveness. And that compassion is the very opposite of the callousness that would lead one to vengeance. It's a term in uh, the Hebrew that's related to the mother's womb, compassion. And in the Greek, it's related to a person's gut. And it's that visceral, sort of deep-seated response that love makes to suffering and to need. We've all felt that with maybe our children or someone that we know or love that's suffering. It's that sort of gut-level response. And so despite all of our great offense and all that we owe to God, he doesn't return with vengeance. Instead, he sees our hopeless and miserable condition, just like that slave, and he has compassion on us. And rather than exacting the cost of our sins from us, wringing out every last debt that we owe, he bears the cost himself. He absorbs it himself. Now, God's incalculable generosity to us is supposed to transform us. That is, the grace that's been given to us is to work its way out into our dealings with others. You remember Luke chapter 7 where Simon, bitter Simon, is sort of rebuking Jesus in his heart because of how he's treating the prostitute who's fallen at his feet. And Jesus says to Simon after a parable, he says, he who's forgiven little loves little. And the reverse of that is he who's forgiven much loves much. This forgiveness of God is supposed to wash through our hearts and to cleanse them from the desire for vengeance, the necessity to get even or the compulsion to assert our rights over and against this person. We can no longer do that. We can't act that way anymore because that's how God has not, God has not dealt with us in that manner. He's dealt with us on a 
entirely different basis. He doesn't count our sins against us. He doesn't reward us according to our iniquities, but he forgives us. And that basis is the basis on which we are to deal with others. As God has dealt with us, so we are to deal with others. Now, this, of course, is where the slave went wrong. This is where he blew it. And this is the negative side of things. He wasn't transformed by the forgiveness that was given to him. It terminated in his own heart like the Dead Sea. He, as is clear from the parable, is still dealing with others on a strict eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth reciprocity. Pay back what you owe are his words to his fellow slave. He's not interested in grace or mercy or patience. What he's interested in is getting back what belongs to him. And if that's how he wants to deal with others, that's how he's going to be dealt with. And so the king revokes his former mercy, and he imposes his debt back upon him. And what this shows us is that we set the tone. What it shows us is that we set the tone. God will deal with us on whatever basis we deal with others. If we choose to withhold forgiveness, Jesus says, verse 35, my heavenly Father will also do the same. That is, God will turn from mercy to wrath when we don't forgive one another. God removes burdens, but he will put them back if we do not remove the burdens of others. As Jesus says, for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. So we have a choice. We can operate according to God's economy of forgiveness or according to our economy of vengeance. We have the opportunity to be like Peter, or at least as Jesus wants Peter to be, or like Lamech. Sevenfold seven, uh, fold vengeance or sevenfold forgiveness. And if we want to end up with the torturers, this is what Jesus is saying, if we want to end up with the torturers, like that slave, we know what to do. Nurture the grudge. Hold on to the anger. Seek opportunities for vengeance. That's the path to the torturers. Now, these are hard words, right? This is, these are, this is not a parable like about, um, like a happy par- par- parable about forgiveness. This is a parable about the failure of forgiveness. So these are hard words, and of course I don't want to soften them, but I do want to help us work through them. Because as we know, forgiveness might be the hardest thing to do. And if forgiveness is such a life and death matter, uh, we need to kind of do this work and figure it out. So how can we forgive others in our lives? Now this passage suggests three things. Three steps that we can take toward forgiveness. The first step is to identify with the wrongdoer. If you want to forgive, the first step is to identify with the wrongdoer. Now, we tend to make caricatures of those we sin against, or rather, we tend to make caricatures of those who sin against us. The other day, Aaron and I were at my dad's house rummaging for pictures of my grandmother when we found a caricature that we had made of us many years ago, not many years ago, like five years ago at the state fair. And... um, you know, it was not all that flattering. And uh, the cartoonist, the caricature, whoever does it, he takes certain unusual 
or not all that attractive features, and he exaggerates them. And he makes those features defining features. And that's what our hearts do with the person who wrongs us. It takes that one sin that was done against us, or that one act, and it makes it the defining feature of who that person is. So to use maybe a rather trivial example, if someone cuts me off on the road, I know it's because they're an idiot. But if someone cuts me off on the road, well, it's because, you know, I had a lapse in concentration or because I didn't see you in my blind spot. Yeah, right, right? So Tim Keller says, while you continue to think of yourself as a three-dimensional, complex human being, you start to think of the person who wronged you as a one-dimensional villain. So to even approach forgiveness, we have to see the whole picture of obviously the situation, but of that person as well. And we have to refrain from making caricatures. Now, why do we make caricatures in the first place? Well, it's because it's a mechanism of self-justification. The caricature makes me feel morally superior to that person. You know, they're morally distorted, right? All these things in their life that are out of proportion. And I'm normal. I'm symmetrical. I'm a sound human being, and I would never do something like that. And so I harbor resentment in my heart toward them, and it makes me feel good about myself. I get to excuse my own sin by focusing on theirs, and in some twisted way, it makes me feel better about myself. There's a reason that we hold on to resentment. There's a bitter sweetness about it that's hard to let go. And of course, the slave in our parable did exactly this. What he failed to do was see himself in the slave who owed him money. What he saw was a thief. What he saw was a sluggard or an evil man, not knowing or simply ignoring that he was those things himself, that he was in that same exact position. So if we are to forgive, that's the first step is realizing that that same sin sickness that dwells in him or her, that led him or her to do this thing toward me, also dwells in me. You're to see yourself in that person. Now, the second step is to bear the cost of forgiveness. There's always a cost to wrongdoing. And that cost must fall on someone. So say a friend carelessly breaks a lamp or some possession in your home. At that point, you have two options. Either they pay for it or you do. Either they absorb the debt or you do. And when we choose to forgive someone, we are choosing to bear that cost. We are choosing not to get even. We are choosing not to exact repayment. And we are choosing not to seek vengeance. Thus, forgiveness is always costly to the one who forgives. You're bearing the weight, the price of that person's sin. And what it means is that the wronged party, not the wrongdoer, bears the cost. The wronged party and not the wrongdoer bears the cost. Now, if we think toward maybe some of the attitudes of toward forgiveness in our society, this is the main reason people don't want to forgive anymore. Why should the one who's been wronged bear 
the cost of forgiveness? It's really a good question, and they have a point. But all we would do as Christians is point them to the Lord Jesus, who bore the weight of our sin on the cross. And so when someone forgives, they're sharing in the sufferings of the Lord Jesus. They're following in that same path because the currency of forgiveness is crossbeams and nails and blood. And so when we forgive, we're walking in the fellowship of the sufferings of the Lord. And of course, that's what the king does in the parable. He's owed an astronomical sum of money, and he's well within his rights to require it, but he chooses instead to free his slave and to absorb the cost himself. There's no government plan that he can seek redress through. He can't write it off on his taxes as charity. Rather, the king takes a massive loss for the good of his negligent slave. So there's no way of getting around it. Forgiveness is always costly to the forgiver. Now, forgiveness is costly, but it's not a cost that you have to pay all at once. It's not a cost that you have to pay all at once. It's not like a debit purchase, in other words. It's more like a credit card. Now, if the sin against you is relatively minor, maybe you have the resources to pay it all at once. You can offer them the gift of forgiveness, and and that's that, right? You're no longer sort of harboring resentment toward them. You're not holding over them. It's it, right? It was small enough that you have the internal resources to say, brother or sister, I forgive you. It's okay. However, if the sin against you is serious, if there's some real harm done against you or your family or so on and so forth, chances are you don't have the resources to pay for that forgiveness all at once. That the sort of bank account of forgiveness is just not strong enough. So instead, what you can do is put it on credit. You grant them forgiveness right away. You purchase it on credit. You give it to them. They're cleared of their debt, but you keep paying for it down the road. Uh, Dan Hamilton, he's got a really classic book on forgiveness, and he gives us an example of this in his own life. His, his uh, fiance uh, broke it off with him. I just want to read you uh, a quote at length here. He says, Once upon a time, I was engaged to a young woman who changed her mind. I forgave her, but in small sums over a year. They were made whenever I spoke to her and refrained from rehashing the past. Done whenever I saw her with another man. Done when I had to renounce jealousy and self-pity. When I prayed for her as she moved into other relationships. Done when I praised her and spoke of her value, though I wanted to slice away at her reputation. He says, these were the payments but she never saw them. So we grant this person, whoever it is, forgiveness, but then we keep paying for it. We keep working through that process. And what this tells us about forgiveness is that it's not a feeling. I don't feel this sort of overweening compassion all the time for this person. Rather, forgiveness is an act of the will. And in choosing to forgive, you're deliberately choosing against your emotions. You're denying yourself the dark pleasures of nurturing those emotions or venting them. Your emotions may or may not catch up to your will, but that's not the point. 
It's an act of the will to bear another's sins. And forgiveness pays that debt done against us. And lastly, we're going to close here. The third step of forgiveness is to will the good of that person. And this is obviously the hardest, is to will the good of that person. Forgiveness is the process by which we move from willing the harm of the person who sinned against us to willing their good. Ultimately, this is why the king forgives his slave. He does not want him to be thrown into prison. He doesn't want to see him, his wife, and his children pay this price for the rest of their lives. Rather, what he wants is good things for them. And that's why he has compassion. He's, and he's willing, the king, to go to great lengths to see this happen. Forgiveness is the change of heart, or it's rather this change of heart that leads us to forgiveness. Our hearts are softened to truly, at this point, love our enemies. Now, how can this happen, to will their good? The, the answer is simply just to pray. Because this is the kind of love that does not originate in the natural world. It's not a love that arises from with us. This is the gift of God. And it's how he loves us. It's Jesus' prayer upon the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Even as we put him to a bloody death, he wills our good. Indeed, that's the reason that he's on the cross in the first place. Because God loves his enemies, Jesus comes into the world and dies upon the cross, purchasing our forgiveness. If we're to ever imitate this, it has to come through prayer. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so it's on that note that I want to end and sort of transition into sharing the Lord's Supper together. Because when we partake, it's for this reason, to remember God's lavish and amazing love to us. And I encourage you, as you come and receive the elements and take them back to your places, open your heart to receive this and allow it to transform you, to, to share that same forgiveness with others. So come receive the elements, and I'll lead us in just a moment.